Good morning, church. We're gonna get into the word of God today, um, so the scripture passage will be from Psalm 32. All right, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from the trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord, and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Amen. Thanks, Becca. Okay, um, I do want to encourage you, if you find this sermon a little confusing this morning, you might want to listen to second hour a little bit later, where I'll have a little bit more time to uh, explain a few of these concepts. Um, I know it's not a great way to start. Um, uh, So this series we're calling Risen is about finding hope and courage when we're at the bottom for whatever reason, right? How do um, you—being risen or rising is not not just a literal truth. Christians believe in the literal physical resurrection from the dead as a future event for all who believe. And that—but we also believe that it is—that the power of the resurrection— and that life is functioning in us now. It's a promise in a number of places in the Bible. The power that functions in us as Christians is not the dominating power to harm or oppress other people. The, the power that is working in us is the power of the resurrection life of God so that we can face and work for the good and act nobly and with virtue in any situation that comes in our, in our life. Does that make sense? And so um, this series is about that happening in our lives spiritually. Now, let me see if I can move the slides. Um, Life is full of um, all kinds of slips and trips and falls into pits, and um, some of that stuff is just going to happen. Some of it we have control over, some of it we don't. Human beings are really good at believing we don't have much control over the pits we fall into, right? And we think we're actually pretty good at getting out of them. But the, the opposite is actually a lot more true. We're actually a lot more like this sheep. We're really, really bad at getting out of pits that we fall into, and once we do get out, we're kind of like how this sheep behaves. <laughs> we, um, we have the capacity to get, like, right back in. And it, it turns out that one of the—yeah, Aaron Hesse sent me that. God bless her. Um, one of the, one of the um, realities of the pits that we find ourselves in um, actually have to do a lot of times with self-inflicted ones, but one of the, the greatest 
pits that people tend to suffer in and not be able to rise out of because they don't really understand what's happening to them and why they're in that pit and what that pit even is, is what we might call the pit of an avenging conscience. The pit of an avenging conscience. There is this dynamic that God has built into us that will always actuate in the presence of our sin and guilt, either salvation or damnation. It creates a binary choice for us that will lead us to one or the other. There is no neutral way that that conscience can affect us. You have internal programming that is ineradicable. You can't get rid of it. It's part of who you are as a human being that you don't consciously control. And that faculty we call the conscience. That is, there is natural knowledge that you can't not know. And because of it— If you live in accord with conscience, it will lead you to God, and it will lead you to the truth, and it will lead you to goodness, and it will lead you to beauty, and it will build you up in virtue, and you will become, right, redeemed in the full humanity and the power of Christ and the work of the Spirit that you were meant to be, and you will be glorified, right? Ultimately and finally by God, but in the work of the Spirit. Now, and if you don't, what happens is conscience creates a revenging action on you, forcing you either to repent and turn around, or to continually confirm your steps towards self-deceit, right? Now, um, one of the ways that this functions is that it says in Psalm 3, 32, 1 to 2, listen to this. He says, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And then he says this. This is like his reasoning behind it. Why is it so blessed? Why is it such a wholesomely rich and great thing to be in this state? And he says this, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. So you see how he's he's actually making two arguments for the blessedness here. One he's saying is that there's reconciliation and forgiveness, that God isn't holding our sin against us and that we're forgiven, right? But that's not the only one. He said, and in whose spirit is no deceit, right? Because if, if it is a blessed thing to be forgiven, how do you get forgiven by God, right? And David knows that the dynamic of being forgiven is confession and repentance, which is being honest with God. It's the only way you can be forgiven. You have to be honest with God and honest with yourself when you're honest with God. And when you're honest with yourself, you can't harbor deceit in your soul. You're, you can't deceive God. You never could. But you can pretend you can. You can deceive yourself. You can fill your heart with deceit as an, as an option to not repent. But, the, but when God draws you to repent, and you actually do confess and repent. And you say out loud, not just what you did, but the moral classification of what you did, that it was wrong. It was wrong before God. It was a sin against your own being, and it hurt other people. That it was ugly, false, and evil. And you confess that, the lie that was built into that sin that was finding a lodging place in your soul is eradicated because your soul has to turn back to the truth. So the blessedness of, of forgiveness is one, is the forgiveness itself. It's the reunited, being reunited with God. It's to not have your sin counted against you, to no longer be under the right penalty of your sin. But there is a secondary, extremely important other one, which is it restores your being. It eradicates the deceit that's harboring in your heart. It forces you to be honest with yourself because you're being honest with God. And in so doing, it leads you back to the path of redemption, the back to the path of truth, true humanity, what you're meant to be, your real identity, what is real in the world, right? And so one of the things that you could say about this relative to it is that, um, is that spiritual integrity can heal your spiritual bones, 
right? He said, when I didn't confess, my bones wasted away. Why does he say bones there? Like, that's pretty rare in the Bible. Like, Nicole found some song, or whoever was picked the worship songs, found some song that had bones in it this morning. It's so like, God bless you. Like, it, like, that's not a very common word. Usually we say heart when we want to talk about our inner feelings, right? He says this because he, he actually, he wants to, he's, like, he's looking for a metaphor that's deeper than heart. Like, what is, like, like what is the very, like, the, the, mo- the most inner that you can get? And he's like, it's heart. I need something better than heart. He's like, it was like the sickness was in my bones, right? It was in my marrow. It was so deep, and it, I, was, I was dying, and I was wasting away at that level. And in some ways, that's what deceit is. It's a, it's, it's a sickness in your spiritual bones. If you can't lie to your—if you, if you lie to yourself, you can never be truthful with yourself. And if you can't be truthful, you can't be good. You can do nothing beautiful. Nothing can be right. Nothing can be right from a lie, right? It's why— it's why the Bible can literally say God is truth. Truth is so fundamental to the core of God's character that it is ineradicable and it, it sets in motion everything else. Everything God does is in accordance with the truth, right? And so all things he does can be beautiful. All things he does can be good because it starts from the truth. And if whatever doesn't start from the truth in us cannot be holy, it cannot be godly, it cannot be beautiful, it cannot be good. And it can't lead us to God and it can't reconcile us with God, right? You could say it like this. Two, that God will give you strength to rise through spiritual integrity, or one, another way to say it would be this, um, that God will give you strength to rise through confession. That operatively speaking, you're like, well, what do I do, Nick? What's my part in this? <clears throat> Your part in this is being honest with God. Is you, you have to actually confess. You have to not hold back and cover over your sin and be silent and avoid it, you have to confess it to God and be honest about it, right? And that's one of the reasons why it's actually relatively rare for people to exist exist in this thing that David calls blessedness, right? The reason why it's so rare is because the cost is kind of high. In order to experience this kind of blessedness, to be totally forgiven, to be justified before God, to know that you're totally accepted and approved of, and to know that there, the no deceit is harboring in your heart to lie to you, right? The cost of that is, is that you have to totally give up the right to justify yourself. And almost nobody wants to do that. That's pretty rare. And it's one of the reasons why it's—it seems rare when he talks about it, but it's also one of the reasons why God is so heavy in pushing us towards this end right? um, David said, when I didn't confess, like all, like your hand was heavy on me. That, that not only has God given us a conscience that will avenge if we don't choose the right, but God's spiritual conviction in his presence presses in on the strength of that conscience. And so we have conscience and conviction pressing on us, right? And and David is is talking about this, like, like it's crushing him as a person. Why would God, why would God do that? Why would he crush you as a person, right? And part of the reason for that is, is that the lies that exist within human culture and human belief are so—they're um, so powerful in deceiving us, right? One of, the, one of the ways that a certain number of lies have kind of come together in the present is something you might, you might call expressive romantic individualism, which is basically this idea, that guilt and shame come from other people's expectations and judgments, telling you that you're unworthy. And Christianity makes you grovel before God for forgiveness. What you need to do is free your mind so that you can live full-hearted in your truth and be happy enough to be yourself and therefore to be happy. Like that, is a, 
It's a really powerful way of looking at the world that is extremely common in the present time. The problem is, is that it has a just what theologians or people call a distorted anthropology. It starts with a wrong view of what human beings are. And when you start with a wrong view of what human beings are, and then you just come up within your mind the way the world ought to be in an ideological way. Well, the world just should just be like this. And then you're like, well, the world should be like that. So the world is like that. And it's good for me to want it to be like that. And all of that stuff is actually the opposite. The world shouldn't be like that. That's a much worse world than we actually have. It isn't like that <laughs> because God created a better world. And therefore, the desire to want the world to be like that is actually a wicked desire. Right? What we, what we have to do as people is we have to realize or discover what we are as human beings, the way things really are, and then what we are called to do given the limitations and opportunities and realities about ourselves. Right? Now, one of the reasons we have to understand this is because um, our conscience, which can avenge against us and create this horrible experience David is having, is designed for our redemption. It's designed for our salvation. It's designed for our good. It's designed for our well-being. It's designed for the good of other people. It's designed to foster love and virtue and hope and truth, okay, and godliness. And it's designed to do it this way, that like when we sin— Right? First of all, the conscience, I'll say in a second, seeks to prevent us from sinning. But if we do sin, it seeks to lead us through the four necessary parts of redemption, which are, one, confession. You have to be honest with God and others. You have to confess what you really did and its moral classification. Two, you need atonement. Someone or something has to make what you did okay again. Third, you need reconciliation because all sin is injustice by definition. And you have to be reconciled at least to God— who you have broken relationship with because you've sinned in his creation. So all sin, even if it's against your own body, or it seems to have no victim, God is always the victim of sin because this is his creation. You're always sinning against what he has made, right? And so you've, every sin is a sin against God, and most sins are sins against others as well. And scripture would argue in this passage, even relative to deceit, every sin is a sin against you because it's an act of personal deceitfulness breaking your nature, leading you away from the image of God, and moving you towards the overwhelming power of the flesh to dominate you and ultimately damn you. And you don't have the right to damn yourself and destroy yourself. You don't have that right. You belong body and soul to God. You, you are as responsible to steward your own life as the environment, as another person you're supposed to love, as a child born to you, as anything that you would say, oh, I have to take care of this. I can't just destroy it just because it's mine. The same is true of you in Christian faith. You must steward yourself. You don't have the right to destroy yourself because you belong body and soul to God, right? And then the fourth is justification, to be put in a place of acceptance and affirmation, to know that you have the right to stand where you are and the right to be who you are in God. And all four of these, those things need to happen for you to experience the blessed freedom of forgiveness and integrity. You know that you're forgiven. You know you belong to God. You know you have the right to stand here. You know who you are, that you have the right to be who you are. You are counted innocent in God's sight. Your sin has been atoned for, and you have thrown the deceit out of your heart, and you're ready to face the truth and live towards what is really true, what is really beautiful, what is really good, what God calls godliness or holiness. Does that make sense? Now— <clears throat> What that means is, is that the, the conscience is moving us towards those things in three ways. The first is trying to get, not get us in trouble. So the conscience first says, don't do that. 
Because once you do that, then you'll be guilty, and then you'll have to go through the four steps of redemption. Let's just not do it in the first place, right? The problem is, is we don't always listen to that. So then the conscience has a second role, which is its accusatory role. You shouldn't have done that. Now you're guilty. Now why is it doing that? Because in that immediate moment, you could repent right then. You could be like, oh, shoot, you're right. And so then, it, then we can respond and go through those four steps of redemption and be placed back in the state of justification, right? But the problem is, is that most of the time we won't do that. Now, I want you to remember before I go any further that this psalm, Psalm 32, is being spoken in the voice of a believer, not an unbeliever. Now, this is just as true for someone who doesn't believe. These things are true of human beings. They're true whether you're a believer or you're not a believer. Do you understand? Because there's lots of people who claim to be believers who are in some sense believers and might be real believers, but aren't exerting faith. They're not actually operating in faith. And so this is the operation of faith. And so you can say that you're a believer, you can be a Christian, you can go to church, and you can not be operating in faith. And so you wonder why God's hand is so heavy upon you when you're like, I'm supposed to be this justified believer who stands in— right? But the fact that you get saved, that God forgives your sins once and for all, doesn't mean he stops your conscience from operating. That would be a terrible thing for him to do. It would lead to your inexorable destruction if he did that. He leaves your conscience fully operative. In fact, he enlivens and strengthens your conscience operation more and more. It becomes more active, more clear, more direct, right? But if we don't obey conscience, what happens is conscience takes on its third role, which you do not want, which is its avenging role. That is, your conscience says, you can't ignore this. I'm not going to let this go. Because what we want to do with our sins, we want to go, ah. We want to be like canoeing down river. We're just going to keep, we're just going to keep moving, you know? And like, we're just, we'll put miles behind us and it, and then if anybody brings it up, we can just charge them with being petty. You know, why are you bringing up the past, right? But the avenging conscience says, no, 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 there is no such thing as a past when it comes to wrongdoing. Wrongdoing is in, a, is in the eternal present. When you've done it, you've done it. You're guilty, period. There is no putting distance between you and it. There is no getting past it. There is no forgiving yourself. Nope. No, no, no. When you've done wrong, you've done wrong. And until you come— by the direction of conscience and the heavy hand of God's conviction to the, the seat where God receives confession and repentance, where he atones for your sin in the death and resurrection of Christ, right, where he reconciles you to himself and with others, and where he justifies you by his own word. There is no future. And until we turn to it, it is the job of conscience to avenge and avenge and avenge and avenge, leading us to one of two results. Either the result in this psalm, where that his hand is so heavy upon us that we can't take it anymore. And in the turmoil of having no peace, no freedom, no relief, that we turn to God. Or we choose deceit. And we lie to ourselves, and we lie to ourselves, and we lie to ourselves, and we lie to ourselves more and more and more and more until there's more of the lie and less of us until there's nothing left of us. And then God finally confirms that with damnation. We don't have the dignity of a human being. We don't get the destiny of one. Right? Now, um, the way conscience avenges is— is in this passage in two ways, right? One is that it produces turmoil, right? If you sin and you don't want to turn back to God and 
your conscience said, don't do that, and then you do it, and it says, okay, you did that. You shouldn't have done that. And you're like, well, I don't care, or I'm not going to do it. Whatever. It doesn't matter, right? Then your conscience goes, oh, you don't want me to do this, right? And then the weight starts to come, and it creates turmoil. I'm a Christian. I belong to God. I've been called to do the good. I've been called to love Him and be reconciled to Him, and to live as—I'm keeping step with the Spirit, and to live as though I'm reconciled to God, to act like God's son or daughter, and I did this thing that is totally inconsistent with that, and you live in the turmoil of the reality of that. You're two people, you're two things, you're divided, you're split. It feels awful, and you're supposed to feel awful. That's a really good thing. And it's not that, that God, Christ's death for you once for all isn't true, and it's not that you don't still have a, a justified standing, right? But, but the point here is that you, the point is your heart, your soul, the very bones of your being is being is either going to accept a lie or it's going to accept a truth. It's either going to make you a law unto yourself, singular and self-justified, alone in the space of creation, or relationally turned back to the God who loved you and created you, guiding you into truth, shaping you into the image of His Son, walking with you by His Spirit. And you, you can—these are different ways, different directions, different paths, different lives, right? And so conscience comes down hard upon you, avenging with turmoil. Right? And God's conviction pushes it in by His Spirit. Why? Because He hates you? No. No. Because He loves you. Because He loves you. And he, 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 wants to, he wants to press you back to the path of your own salvation, your happiness, ultimately to what David calls blessedness. Right? Or the other thing is deceit. Like, that's your only other choice. If you, like, if in turmoil, you can go one of two ways. You can either say, ah, this way, God— or you have to say, oh, I got to shut God up. So I have to, I have to lie. I have to tell lies about why I don't want to feel this way. And so I can turn to expressive romanticism. I can turn to all kinds of things. And when you do that, the problem is, is that when you choose deceit, rather than resolving turmoil through repentance and confession, what happens is, is that you can't actually silence the avenging conscience. You, you lie to yourself. You, you tell yourself you can, but you can't really do it. It's still there. And so you, you, what you do is you come up with all these little concoctions that feel like the thing that would get you one of the four pieces of redemption, but it's not that thing. So for example, have you ever heard about somebody talking about something they did wrong? And they told you everything about the thing ad nauseum, except for that it was wrong. Right? Or um, you'll be kind of like just talking with somebody, and somebody will just like— They'll just like overshare something weird and embarrassing that they did that actually is immoral. They don't actually say it's immoral, but they just kind of say it. And you're kind of like, what? Why did you do that? Why did you draw attention to yourself to say that thing in this context that way? That's kind of weird, right? It's, that's, that's, that's referred to as blurting. It's, a, it's, false, it's false confession, right? So what happens is you don't want to confess. You don't want to be honest with God. So what you do is you come up with ways to confess falsely. Either you tell the whole story, you storytell. You tell the whole story, you say everything about the thing except for that it was wrong, it makes you guilty, and that you must turn to God. Or you just, you blurt out the thing because it's kind of like, it's in your heart, it's on your mind, it's there. It's kind of in your subconscious. You don't really realize it's still there, but it's still there. And it just kind of just comes out. You just say, like, weird stuff. Right? Another is like just euphemism. You just start—you learn to teach yourself to call things things that they aren't because of how you don't want to have to feel about them. Does that make sense? Um, there was an article not too long ago where an abortion doctor was referring to abortion as evacuating the contents of the uterus. 
Well, that takes a little creativity. Right? We, and, and that's not, we do that for everything. How we yell at our spouse, how we stand up for ourselves, how we self-counsel and do self-therapy. All these different things, our political ideologies. You know, when we, you know, when we like attack our opponents and treat them inhumanly, inhumanly, we call that awareness, right? And when they attack us, we call it viciousness, right? These are, so we, you, we come up with like little positive ways to spin things, right? And this goes on. And then, and then what we do is we actually, you're like, well, what about reconciliation community? What we do is we, we look for guilty, like, people to be with. We look for, for similarly guilty people, right? So what we do is, so, so for example, this, this happens in families all the time, right? A kid decides to be wayward and do whatever they want, rather than face the, the moral catastrophe of becoming an adult, right? So you're, you're a teenager, and you're like, you have to become an adult. Well, who wants to become an adult? <laughs> like, taking on all this responsibility instead of just having all this privilege is a terrible thing. Your privilege levels are going down as you get older, and your responsibility levels are skyrocketing. It's, it's a catastrophe, right? And who doesn't want to avoid that? Everybody wants to avoid that, right? And so what's the easiest way to avoid that? Well, you talk to other teenagers who want to avoid it, and you decide to do whatever the heck you want and demonize your parents and their parents because they demand something morally of you, right? And so what you do is like you, you confess with all these like shared wicked little thieves, <laughs> right? And you all talk about how bad those parent people are, right? And this is true of like all kinds of people. Right? All, kinds of, all kinds of dynamics where instead of me confessing to the righteous God what he knows is true and me allowing him to tell me that I'm wrong and me confess that I'm wrong, I'm going to go find other people who don't think I'm wrong. Or if I tell them they're not wrong, they'll tell me I'm not wrong. Right? That's part of what the Bible means by worldliness. How we confirm our sins by entering into a cultural dynamic and people who are willing to affirm us if we affirm them in all of our rejection of the truth of God. And on and on this goes. And you see, every time we take one of those steps, we lie to ourselves more. We lie to ourselves more deeply. We lie to ourselves more completely. And then all these things have a whirling effect of confirming each other. So we become less honest and less honest with God. And the less honest we are with God, the less honest we are with ourselves. And because truth, beauty, goodness, and holiness are inextricably bound and linked to each other, the less we are of truth, the less we are of all of the others. And since all of those are bound up in the image of the God, the more we hack and scratch and cut and burn the image of God, tearing out wires in our mind of things we can't not know because we don't want to know them because we're confirming in every single one of those decisions that we don't want to be a human being. We don't want to bear the image of God and we don't want an eternity with him. If we stand ever damned before God, we're, it's not going to be like we didn't accept Jesus one time. That's not what's going to happen. God's not going to be like, you know what? You had this chance in 19, like, two, or in 2013 to accept Jesus, and you didn't accept Jesus, so you're going to hell. That's not how it's going to go. That's how it's going to go. It's going to be like these reams and stacks of decisions we made every step along the way. Another step towards deceit, self-justification, and away from God. Millions of them. Tens of millions of them. We think we're going to stand before God like, or you will until we have faces and like, like read our complaint. And like, we think that's going to go somewhere. It's going to go nowhere. And the only, the only safety, the only salvation, the only thing that can divert the path of continual damnation is confession. It's the only thing, right? 
All right, I'm about halfway through the sermon. Um, let, let me just say three things real fast. Because in the rest of the psalm, what David does is he tries to encourage us that there's three incredibly good reasons why we should embrace this. Why we should embrace confession. Why we should turn to God. Why we shouldn't go down this path. And it's not just that, like, God will convict us and our conscience will avenge us and that we're facing our own damnation. It's not just that. There are these three incredibly positive, incredibly great things that if we turn to God, we trust Him, and we take the terrifying step of opening ourselves in moral nakedness before God and hoping that He will love and save and redeem us because we know He will based on His promise and His actions and His words, then, like, such great things can happen. But it takes the exertion of faith. And the first is, is that God can be your deliverer rather than your discipliner, right? It says in those verses right after that, he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly pray while you may be found. That is, confess and repent, right? And he says, surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance, right? God is moving. You see, the minute that person confesses and prays to the Lord and seeks him while he may be found, which is, means while you're alive, right? He's like, when that, the minute that happens, God moves from being in the positions of pressing the vengeance of conscience down on you to turn you to him. He moves from that discipliner immediately to deliverer. He, he goes from this to this in a moment. Think of it. Right? The second thing is, is that God teaches wisdom to the honest and humble confessor. God himself teaches wisdom to the honest and humble confessor. And the only way to become honest and humble before God when we have sinned is by confession, right? And so it says in verses 8 and 9, I will instruct you and teach you. Notice, I want you to see something here. This is the first verse in the psalm that changes to the first person. It's no longer a description of God. It is God speaking. He is speaking for himself. And he speaks for himself in the present positive. Listen, listen, guys. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, but they won't come to you, right? He's saying, I can—you want freedom? You want independence? There's only one true freedom and independence, and that is at the result of wisdom. If you know the way you should go, if you've been taught it in your heart by God himself, then he can just let you go. Do it. He doesn't have to tie you up or put a bridle in your mouth or pull you along or spin you around. You, you will go with him. You will go where you're meant to go, and he can just let you do it. Virtue is the only means of ultimate freedom. And it can only be pursued in God-given wisdom in its entirety, right? And then the, the last thing is, is that uprightness of heart finds joy and escapes many woes. Right? There's this proverb that says— um, that the, the way of the wicked is hard. I can't remember the first part of the verse. Something about w wisdom being fantastic. The second, the second verse is, my, I have a daughter that, that recites it sometimes. She's like, the way of the wicked is hard. Right? He's saying, listen, it's for your good. You think, you think in turning to deceit that your life is going to be easier? Do you really think that? Do you really think it's going to be more wholesome, more blessed? Do you think it's going to have more goodness in it? Do you think your relationships are going to be deeper? Do you think that the people who want to gather around you, who come into intimate friendship with you, do you think they're going to be better people when you choose deceit? You're going to find worthless co-conspirators. They're going to be your closest allies. 
And then you're going to wonder when they steal from you or when they turn away from you or they drop you when you can't do stuff for them anymore. Like, uprightness in heart leads to joy. The most joyful life that can be had under the curse. But just joy in God himself because you're reconciled to God. He has, he counts no sin against you. But also in all of your ways, you'll be led to the most wholesome and good of those ways. Filled with all the trials of life and the pain that is necessary, but everything will be filled with meaning and everything will have its inherent purpose. And it will be more good, more wholesome, more fruitful, more flourishing than you thought maybe it was possible or that you would have experienced otherwise. Or he says in verses 10 and 11, Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous, seeing all you who are upright in heart. Do you, you see what he's saying? He's like, literally, like in a couple, a couple minutes here, we're going to sing again. Do, do you understand? Like if you confess to the Lord and you let it go and he rushes into you and lifts you up as, his deli- as the deliverer instead of as the discipliner, like in every moment, like literally, you can right now be glad. You can rejoice right now because you're walking in that life. Those promises with that God towards his ends, with that meaning for that purpose, imbued with that significance toward that ultimate end of glorification, that's all yours. And you can feel it like literally right now. The last thing I think is important to say is one of the things that that you might have puzzled over over what I said is the second step in redemption is atonement that something or someone makes what you did all right. Did you—is anybody still hung up on that, right? Like, like, wait, wait, Nick, you kind of moved right past the somebody makes what I did okay. (laughs) I'm not sure that can happen. I don't know if you know what I did, but it's going to be hard to make that okay if evil is in the eternal present. If I can't just get past it, right? There's one place in the New Testament where this psalm is quoted. Blessed is the man or the person who the Lord will not count his sin against him. It's in Romans 4. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a quote from Genesis. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, right? He earned them, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him, right? And so what what Paul is arguing in Romans is, how does this happen? How does this come about? Like the dynamic is faith, that you trust in God and God credits righteousness to you. How does he get the moral right to credit righteousness to us? And the fact, answer is, is that in the chapter before, he says it is in the death and resurrection of Jesus as the one who covers over sin and atones for us when you put your trust in him and him alone, right? But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, that is apart from earning it yourself, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Everyone God has said to speak to us has all said this. They've all confirmed it. God has been speaking and showing himself in this dynamic for thousands of years so that we would understand it. Even though it feels unbelievable, God is 100% behind this, right? And he says this, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Do you see what he's saying? 
You see, one of the reasons why, because you could just say, Nick, why can't I psychologically do this without God? Or what if I just like philosophically imagine a God figure, like I would in like a 12-step program maybe, and say, I'll just be honest with that, that hypothetical God figure, be honest with myself, and like I can just be, I, why do I have to be religious for this? And the answer is this, because there's one part of redemption that you cannot do without God. And without that one, you can't really do any of the others. And that's, and that's that you needed a divine making it better for the guilt of your sin. You needed what the Bible calls an atonement. David, David says um, that when he stopped covering his sin and was honest to God, God atoned for his sin, which literally means covered it over. You see, you, have, you, you, you can make one of two choices. You can either in deceit seek to cover over your sin, but the stink still comes through whatever you paint over it, or God can wipe it away. And the only way he can do that is through the moral seriousness of the death of his own son for your unrighteousness and mine, for our sins. He died, it says in Isaiah 53, for our sins, in our place. And he gives us his own righteousness. Because in faith, you're like, well, how does that work? How do you do that morally? Here's how the scripture says. It says that in faith, we come into union with Christ. You know how in the beginning of the Bible, it says that the man and the woman became one flesh? And so they were counted as one unit, right? That in faith, the Spirit indwells us, and we become, Scripture says, one with Christ. We are, quote, in Him. And by being in Him, He takes everything that is ours, and we receive everything that says we're counted together as one flesh. And in so doing, He takes on the penalty and cost of our sin, and He gives us the greatness and the standing of His own righteousness. Christians call this the doctrine of imputation. Does that make sense? And because of that, we can be atoned for. That can happen. God can credit righteousness to you. But it, as it says in this writing, the apostle says, there's really only one way that can happen for human beings of, of any race, any creed, any culture, any place. You can do a lot of this psychologically on your own as self-therapy, but there's, there's a way in which it can never really work without the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. And you believing in him directly for your salvation, confessing your sin to God, and receiving the gift of righteousness given out of generosity in his favor. You can do that. So if you, you heard me say earlier in the sermon that um, when David says this, he's a believer. He already believes in God. He turns back to God for that justification. But if you're not a Christian, it's the exact same dynamic for you. It's literally exactly the same. You just do it for the first time. You, instead of going down the road of the sea, falling under the vengeance of conscience, right? To keeping to tell yourself that expressive romantic individualism is going to lead to your, your freedom and your good life or whatever until you come crashing up against reality and your soul is destroyed. Instead, you allow that, that heavy hand of God that is wasting away the inner bones of your person, of your mind, of your heart, of your soul, and you let that pain lead you to the God who in a moment will go from being your discipliner to your deliverer. He does it, he does it from love. He does it for redemption. He does it for your future. He does it for fruitfulness. He does it out of grace. He does it because he's merciful in heart. He is the best that you could ever turn to, the only companion worth having when compared. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't done that, I want you to do it right now. There's a place to click if you're watching online. You can raise your hand if you want right now. Like, I mean, I don't care what you do, but do it. Right? Whether you're a believer or not, it's really the same dynamic. You turn to Christ. You confess 
freely, and then you rejoice fully. We're going to have a chance to do that right now. We're going to sing a little bit, um, use music and poetry to have an opportunity for you to give yourself wholly, wholeheartedly to God. Release the disease from within your bones and give yourself to your deliverer, right? Um, If there's stuff in the sermon that confused you, just put AMA for Ask Me Anything colon in the comments and put your question in. After we sing a couple songs, I'll come up for about 15 minutes and answer any questions that you have. Um, So feel free to do that while we sing. We pray. God, um, I'm not really sure if this was confusing for people or very helpful. Um, I'm always trying to find a way to take your words and to explain them in the language that are, are stuck in people's minds because of our culture and to explain how you're right, how you've been right, how you're good, and how what you've done is beautiful in ways that like pierces like the window of plausibility in people's hearts in this, in this secular city and in our, in our lives. And to, to, show, to show, like to show the work of how good you are. And I, I pray that this psalm, Psalm 32, would be, would, would carry with it an insight that would break open um, pits that we're stuck in. I, I believe that for many believers and for many people, um, I believe many of us and many people that we will come in contact with are stuck under the weight of an avenging conscience. And it is a sickness in their bones, and it's crushing their life, and it's causing them to jump into pit after pit after pit, and to harm themselves and to be weakened by it and to be struggling, and then yet to be angry at you for why you don't make them stronger and why you don't make your, your, their life easier. And I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, you would free people from that lie. And they would see with a hundred tons of weight the self-deception. And I pray that you would cut it out as they confess it to you. And that they would even feel the freedom of you rushing in to be their deliverer. Please work by your spirit in the power of the resurrection right now, God. And help us to experience what David says at the end of the psalm. When he says, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all who are upright. 